Hey, welcome everybody to BibleQuest.org uh, webcast. If you're joining us from Facebook today, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please uh, leave your questions in the comments below, and we'll try to get to those as soon as we can. We, um, if you're joining us through BibleQuest.org, you can use the Q&A box there. Um, just so please just look for the hand icon or uh, use the Q&A window there. Our panelists today are Jeff Smelser from Exton, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Good afternoon, Stephen and everyone. Also got uh, Scott Smelser from here in Gettysburg. Howdy. Hey, Scott. Uh, we've got Drew DeGrotto from Honesdale, <clears throat> Pennsylvania. How you doing, Stephen? I just want to remind you, did you hit broadcast on the app? I just now hit it. <laughs> I've been good about that. I forgot today. Thank you for reminding me. It's okay. So I'm Stephen Rouse from Gettysburg as well, and uh, thanks for joining us today. And also let me uh, welcome everyone who are who is joining us from uh, the BibleQuest.org app. Uh, those of you that are watching through that app, please use your uh, text in your questions using the Q&A window. Uh, but if you'd like to voice in your question, you have that capability as well. Just hit the hand icon that you'll see on that on the video screen. Also, let all of us know that you'd like to ask us verbally your question. So with all of that out of the way, Stephen, what's the question that we're uh, answering from our viewing audience that we received? I think we yeah. received it last week or the week before. Which one is that, Stephen? It, it's, it's, been a little, it's been a little while since we've got this one, but we've been <laughs> working our way through all the questions we've been getting. So, and again, if anybody has questions uh, today, please uh, send us those questions. If we can't get it to it today, we'll get to it as soon as we can. Our question today comes from Luke chapter 16, and uh, they wrote to us and said, uh, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, speaks concerning what is widely considered to be the Hadean realm, or Hades, which seems to be the place of the dead. I have heard some say that when a faithful brother passes away, he or she does not go to Hades, but rather to heaven. Any thoughts on that? So this will be a question we're talking about today that really primarily deals with where do we go when we die? Uh, do we go kind of directly to heaven? Uh, what about Hades, the realm of the dead? Um, and so we're going to try to talk about some different aspects of this question today. What, what are y'all's thoughts on that? Let's begin with just a reading of the text and then start discussing it. And then we'll get to that question as we go through. So in Luke chapter 16, and we're starting here in verse 19, it says, Jesus speaking, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple in fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Again, this is Luke chapter 16, starting verse 19. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So that's the setup. We've got two people in very different uh, situations. Any comments on that before we go ahead and see what happens to them fake wise? No. All right. The poor man died. And what happens to him? What does the text say? It says he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Then it says the rich man also died. And what does it say? He was buried and in Hades. So it kind of fits into the first shall be last kind of motif. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the, the last shall be first. The rich fellow dressed in purple, uh, 
fine linen, eating sumptuously every day, and the fella just wanting crumbs. And we'll, we'll see how that gets echoed in a minute. Covered with swords. And now it's reversed. Their fates are very reversed. In Hades, being in torments, the rich man lifts up his eyes, and what does he see far away? He's Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And now, what, what do we see the rich man doing in the next verse? He's actually calling out uh, Father Abraham. Yeah. Asking him yeah. for mercy, and then right. Lazarus to give him something to quench his thirst. Yeah. So he's calling out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send who? Lazarus. To dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. What's Abraham's answer? Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Kind of reminds me of Jesus' statement about those who are seeking a reward. They're wanting the attention of the people when they boast of their almsgiving or this or that. And he says, they've got their reward. Abraham here, in in essence, says to the rich man, hey, you live for one thing and you got it. You got your reward. Right. Right. And, And how much their situation is reversed. Lazarus had been laid there there uh it says at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table so he's in the position of the beggar you know longing for someone to have mercy on him and now who who's begging for mercy yeah the rich man mm-hmm. and so he asks and is he asking for a lot no, actually, he's only asking for a drop of water, just to dip his yeah, Lazarus before, was Lazarus saying, you know, bring me a whole roasted chicken? Lazarus was just wanting what? What fell from the rich man's table, just the crumbs, basically. Yeah, the crumbs. And the answer is, before, you know, you had that, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great, is it chasm or chasm? Golf is easier. Uh, for me and others, it might not remember. Is it chasm or chasm? Chasm. chasm. Thank you. All right. So there's this great gulf fixed. And uh, between us and you, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Then he has another request. What's his next request? I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And for our understanding of the state of the dead, this part of the account is important for us time-wise, because it shows us when is this all occurring. It's before the end of the world. It's before the final day of judgment. There's still his brothers living on the earth. Yeah. And Abraham's answer is? we got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And just a side note on that before we go ahead, but I don't want to forget it. Have you ever encountered uh, talking with Mormons and they've made the argument, 
we have apostles and y'all don't. You yeah. ever heard that argument? Yep. Well, at the time this is being said, is Moses still alive? No, he's, he's, he's long gone, 1,400 years ago. Yeah, but he still has Moses and the prophets because what was the important thing about Moses and the prophets? What he said that was from God that was then recorded for everybody else. Yeah, we don't need to know what color hair Peter had or, or, or you know, what, what John looked like. We need their message. So if we've got the message, we've got apostles and we've got. All right. So, and he said, no father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So that's the text. And now, guys, let's begin discussing. I guess one of the first questions that we have to ask is, uh, is, is this account kind of intended to be just something figurative? Um, is it just kind of a parable that we're not supposed to press too literally? Or is it an accurate description of what's on the other side of death? So, so I'll, Two I'll questions I'll, there. I'll, Go ahead, Jeff. I'll throw this comment out. Um, obviously, there's some figurative language in here. Yes. Uh, but because this figurative language doesn't mean we just dismiss the thing as pointless or as untruthful. But right. when we talk about when we talk about you know dip his finger in a, in water and bring a drop and put it on my tongue, if Lazarus and the rich man are both dead, neither one of them has a finger or a tongue. Their fingers and their tongues are in the ground, decaying in the grave. Um, so obviously there's spirit, there's figurative language. But what does just taking that example? What does that language indicate? it indicates that the rich man is exceedingly uncomfortable. He's desiring relief and he's not getting it. Exactly. There's figurative language all throughout the Bible. Figurative doesn't mean you don't pay attention to what it says. For instance, when uh, in Acts uh, 26, Paul's recounting his conversion. And there's a phrase there. The Lord says to Paul, it is hard for you to, Kick against the goads. Yeah, the ox goat. Well, is Saul literally kicking? Is he literally being poked with an ox goat? No, no but he is being stubborn, and he's, he's resisting something he needed to yield to. Stephen, if you say to your wife, you are my sunshine, and then she's all excited, and then somebody says to your wife, she says, Brianne, that's not literally true. <laughs> she goes, oh, you lied to me. Oh. There's no meaning in his words. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to ignore that. It's totally meaningless. <laughs> Another thing on, have you ever noticed how when there's something people don't like, they say, well, I don't take that literally. Yeah. yeah. If you don't take it literally and you take it figuratively, what's it a figure of? For instance, mm -hmm. if I'm a thief and you guys say, well, you know, the Bible condemns stealing. Well, I don't take that literally. <laughs> what that really means is I just don't take that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the question of whether or not it's terrible, yes, there's obviously some figurative things in it. On the question of is it a parable, uh, there's a couple of things that could be argued each way. I don't know that that's a very important argument, but what would be one thing you would point at that would suggest, yeah, maybe this is a parable? Well, just the way it begins with uh, the, the language, the American standard says, now there was a certain rich man. Uh, that's an, kind of an ironic uh, device that we use in English for translating because the Greek is very indefinite. There was some rich man. 
I don't know how some of the other uh, translations handle it, but it's the stereotypical language with which Jesus begins to introduce the characters in a parable. Yeah, uh, there, chapter 16, verse 1 began with, there was a rich man who had a manager and stuff, and you have the parable of the unjust steward. There's also something different about this one from all of the other parables, if it's a parable. And what is that? You have some specific things. You've got a, a certain rich man. We don't know his name. But then you've got Lazarus. Like, that's a little unusual because usually the people in the parables are not named. And especially right, the name right. that. If, if it's a parable, it's the only one that's named. I would say, but but I don't think does it really matter whether it is a parable or an example of what's going on in in another realm. I think you are exactly right, Drew. One time, I used to study with a fellow who said, "I take everything in the Bible literal." I said, "Everything, everything." Uh, and there was uh, there was a couple I studied with a while back, and they insisted every parable was a historical account. So there was a good Samaritan walking down a road. There was a man lying there half dead. He, you know, they say every parable literally happened. Well, I would say that the parables are narratives created to make a point. But either way, whether, whether the parable of the good Samaritan was those four historic individuals or not, or whether it's a story Jesus told to make the point, does it make any difference at all about what we're supposed no, to learn from? No. And, and you know, one of the problems yeah. here occurs to me, people today don't know what literal means. People use literal when they mean uh, exceedingly. Just one that sticks in my mind, there was a sports uh, newspaper sports story about a football team that was ahead, and they were trying to run out the clock for the last – couple of minutes and so the story says they literally sat on the ball for the last two minutes <laughs> that you picture people don't know what literally means <laughs> i you i think you were there jeff years ago i heard a guy preaching and he said my work my wife mm. works her fingers to the bone Literally, <laughs> you know, get her to the ER. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So either way, like like the two men that went to the temple to pray. Two men went to the temple to pray. One bragged about himself, and one was recognized he was a sinner and asked for God's mercy. Whether that's a historical two men or Jesus is using it as a story to illustrate two mindsets doesn't make any difference from the point we need to learn from. You know, I just, as you were going through and read it, you read verse 30 already, right? Or was I reading ahead? You did read it. Yes. Yeah, well, we read all the way through. Actually, well, look, no, we didn't finish. We oh, need we to go back and hit 30 and 31. Well, go ahead and finish that oh, one. Oh, we did. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Back to the question, and this just popped out of me today, I think, for the first time. I took it for granted, maybe. But in a lot of movies and stories when, when someone's, you know, the movie about the guy goes, dies, goes to heaven, comes back with another task or another story where the man has something happen to him, he dies, but he doesn't know he's dead. And he says, am I dead? The rich man knew he was dead. Yeah. 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 Yes. Good point. Yeah. 
Hey, can I throw out some? I don't want to get us too far off track, but just real quickly here. Go for it. I want to see what you guys think about whether this is reading too much into it or not. The, the rich man is going to end up, you know, he says, go, go, go tell my brothers. And, and the, the observation, and I've made this observation, but I'd like to get it evaluated, whether I'm reading too much into the text, is that in saying this, his concern perhaps is being characterized not so much as truly being for his brothers, but it's kind of justifying himself because when the response is they have Moses and the prophets, well, this rich man had Moses and the prophets when he was on the earth. And so he replies, well, no, that's not enough. If somebody goes back from the dead, then they'll have enough information as if to say, I didn't have enough information. Is that reading too much into it? Maybe it is. I'm not following. I, what what do you, what's the point you're you're asking? It's just it's it's kind of an analysis of the of the psychology of the rich man here. It, it, is he really concerned about his brothers, or is he trying to justify himself? Why I ended up where I am as the rich man? Here I am. I wouldn't be here if you sent somebody back from the dead to warn me, because he had Moses and the prophets just as his brothers do. So maybe that's reading too much into it. Maybe. I do think he, he says at the beginning, the first thing he says is, I beg you, you know, please send somebody to my brothers. Send Lazarus back um, to do that um, so that they would repent. And so I do think there is some concern. It's not just uh, in self-defense. I think it's interesting, just in the broader context of Luke, is that uh, he says, even if someone comes to them from the dead, they're not going to repent. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Which, which is interesting because not only is Jesus going to do it himself, but about this time, and probably as best I can figure the chronology, shortly after this time, there's going to be somebody named Lazarus who's going to literally come back from the dead. When we get to discussing whether this is a parable or not, and the point is made, well, there's a name in this. If it's a parable, it, there must be some reason a name was included in it. Um, so that's a possibility. That is interesting. And what did the Pharisees do when Lazarus was raised from the dead? They wanted to kill Jesus. <laughs> they didn't believe. They also wanted to kill Lazarus. Yeah. Which yeah. means they knew he did. There, there was a plot to kill Lazarus, yeah. So they, they did not believe, even All though right. Lazarus came back from the dead. But to what this parable teaches, what I mean, this, there's several things this parable teaches, but one thing it clearly teaches is after, after you die, you can't change your fate at that point. The, the, it's described in, in Luke 16 in the story as there's a great gulf and nobody can cross between it. So if, if I have cast my lot with the devil and I die, I don't get a chance after death to try to fix that. So it's not like a purgatory kind of thing where I can keep paying off my sins afterward. It's one judgment and that's, that's it. Which, which leads people to ask, well, then what's the judgment day for if it's already been decided? And, you know, we, we, are, we have criminals arrested all the time who it's clear that they're guilty. It's clear what their fate is, and, but they're arrested and they're put in a holding cell uh, awaiting their trial for they will receive the official, the official pronouncement and then they'll go off to their fate. Yeah. Um, I want to throw a screen up here. The question that was asked has to do with, well, do you go to heaven? So here's my question, and let me see if I can. Uh, oh, there it is. I'm going to share my screen here. And I have 
so technologically challenged, I've forgotten how to share my screen. It should be there at the bottom, the green button. Ah, thank you. Well, I'm colorblind. Oh, that's true. <laughs> the middle button. Ah, I, see it. I see it. All right. So let's go to Blue Letter Bible. And here we go. We're going to search the Bible for the phrase, go to heaven. All right. Here we go. And to get that exact phrase, you put it in question marks. So uh, people are always talking about go to heaven. The question's here, well, did he go to heaven, et cetera. Let's see how many times the Bible says go to heaven. We hit search and let the search engine do its work. And go to heaven occurs. There are no concordant results for go to heaven. Well, try going to heaven. Well, 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 you're also doing the King James version. What about <laughs> another version? All right, let's go. Going to heaven. And uh, what translation do we want? Go with the New American Standard. New American Standard. All right, going to heaven in the New American Standard. Ah! <laughs> hey, I also want to let everyone know, we didn't practice this. I didn't know you were going to spring this on us, but it's fun. <laughs> The point being, and, and now the Bible does speak, Peter talks about our inheritance reserved in heaven. Yeah. So it's not that there's not a, a connotation there, an idea, but if we begin with phraseology that we're looking for, and then we're, we're what, what did this guy, if that's not the general phraseology of the Bible in the first place, we may be asking the wrong question. Yeah. While Steven, we're here for just a second, Alan Williamson chimed in what we were talking about a minute ago. Uh, he said, when Lazarus learned the Pharisees wanted to kill him, he thought to himself, been there, done that, but I have a friend in Jesus, not worried. Um, I, I've always wondered what it was like when Lazarus got raised from the dead. I mean, on this side, it's awesome. Yeah. But like, if you're in a place of comfort and rest, and they're like, hey, Lazarus, we need you back Earthside again. And he's like, oh, man, seriously? You know, like, and of course, Lazarus at some point had to die again. It's like, that seems like kind of a rough way to go. <laughs> As to the immediacy of something, and, and uh, we can talk more about the resurrection later, but is it to the immediacy of something? Also in the Gospel of Luke, we have somebody else told where they're going to be right when they die. What's that? Oh, yeah, the thief on the cross. Yeah, and Jesus said, and what was his question? You remember, the other thief is mocking Jesus, and then this thief says... Something about, if you, if, uh, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Yeah, first he defends Jesus, and he says, we deserve to be here. This, this is what we deserve, but he's done nothing amiss. Then he says to Jesus, he asks him, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He probably doesn't every stunt understand everything about the kingdom, as the apostles didn't either. But he's asking to be remembered at some point in the future. And then Jesus does something much better than that. He says what? Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, yeah. let me throw this question. Uh, real quick, Alan yeah. Williamson also commented and said, Paul thought of dying in the context of going to be with Christ. Yes, yes. Philippians 1. Philippians 1 that's right. So it's yeah. much better to depart and to be with the Lord. Which brings up, uh, and, and one of you had mentioned this earlier, or several of you, so many of our hymns, or some of our hymns focus on an almost materialistic sense of heaven 
And that's not what you see Paul talking about, what's going to be better. He doesn't say, I'm going, I'm going to have a mansion that'll be better. You know, I'm going to be walking on gold that will be better. He says, I will be with Christ. And I think it's a challenging thing for us. It's just a little bit of a side note. Uh, We need to be careful about the songs we sing because uh, we need to be singing things that are true. And songs that talk about the Golden Street and the pearly gates and the singing and things, I don't think that they're untrue. We see some of those images in the book of Revelation and other places. But when there's an kind of a only an emphasizing the the those poetic descriptions of heaven we kind of sometimes lose the the focus uh it would be like if you're talking to someone who's about to to be married and you said hey you're about to get married like what are you excited about and they're like oh the house is gonna be amazing and the the neighborhood you know and like we're gonna have this car and this pool and this tv and like (laughs) hey you're you're getting married like you'd be kind of concerned for them because the whole point is You're going to be with the one that you love. And, and, and similarly, sometimes I think our songs about heaven, are, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the, the surroundings and not enough emphasis on the relationship. Right. And that's really the whole point. Right. And let, let's think about some of the language describing the afterlife. Uh, very often, hell is described as a lake of fire. Uh, we have it, I mean, from the promise in Matthew 13, talking about the Jesus is greater than John. He can not only baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he can baptize you in fire, and it's a fire of judgment. Um, these into the eternal fire, fire, fire. But sometimes in Jesus' parables, it's he will be cast out into utter darkness. 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 We, uh, we have heaven, streets of transparent gold. Um, let, let me throw it out an illustration and see what you guys think about this. Um, Steve and I have a good friend who is totally blind and has no memory of sight whatsoever. If you were tasked with the job of explaining to her or any similarly blind person what blue is or what yellow is, mm. how would you approach it? Yeah, all you could do is try to think of things that person is familiar with and express it in those terms it wouldn't be a direct, you, you could not communicate exactly what blue is, but you could say, have you ever felt a brisk breeze on your plate, face that was refreshing and, and cool and, and that's blue. Yeah. Well, but. Or the sun on your arm. That's yellow. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 uh, gray. Have you ever just a cool drizzly day and everything's kind of blah. That's gray. So we're relating it to things that are familiar to the four senses they have. Yeah. Uh, now, you could define, I suppose, blue more technically. Sure. You could speak in terms of the, is, yeah, frequencies, the, the wavelengths and frequencies. And if you came up with a mathematical description of the lab- wavelengths of light that would reflect blue and gave them the mathematical formula, would they be like, oh, blue. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I'm not so bad off not being able to see. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound like I'm missing much. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Matt, Matt has a, a question here. Uh, he says, so is heaven seen more as a state of being or as a physical, if you will, place? 
Well, this is this is, I think, uh, a, a good way to to attack uh, to attack this whole subject is to understand that when we're talking about our existence beyond this life, we're really talking about such circumstances as being with the Lord or not being with the Lord. We're talking about such circumstances as being uh, a disembodied spirit or being clothed with our eternal body, our, our heavenly body. Um, and, and we tend to think of the distinctions in the afterlife as geographical locations. You know, you die, you move to this place, and then after that you move over to this place, but there's some other people who are over in this place. And we end up with difficulties when we start and not to say you can't speak of it in geographical terms. Jesus obviously did in Luke, the 16th chapter. But we've already said there's some figurative language there. When we think about it that way, we end up with difficulties. Like Paul saying, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Well, I believe he was with Christ. But then they say, but Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God. And so Paul must be in heaven. And so if he's in heaven, he's not in Hades because that's a different place. All of that is trying to press the figures of geographical location beyond what they were intended to bear. Mm-hmm. Heaven uh, is a spiritual realm. Um, th- there are, there are uh, supernatural beings of the devil's side that are in heavenly realms. Um, so we, we have this kind of, like you said earlier in our discussion, Stephen, from our songs, we have this idea of heaven as a place, and uh, in that place, there's no evil. I believe that when we have the victory over death and we're with our God, we're going to be separated from evil. But I think that if we do better to think of this as a state of being rather than ge- geographical locations, I probably didn't yeah. say that. And, and to understand it, I'll say it better. If we were given a technical description of exactly what everything will be like since it's something beyond our experience that technical description might be equivalent to trying to give a mathematical description of light waves to the blind person yeah and so you heaven is well you wouldn't say streets paved with mud it would you know it's this (laughs) glorious glorious thing uh, one last thing on that illustration, uh, and, and then get to whatever you guys want to talk about. One time I was talking with another fellow. I knew and he was blind, had no memory of sight. And I asked him, I said, is color real? And he said yes, but it was not a real convicted yes. It was kind of like, yeah. And then I said, is music real? Oh, yeah. One he had experienced, one he hadn't. And, and so the Bible gives us these glorious image descriptions of things related to earth, jewels, gold, stuff like that. The most fantastic things on earth to paint the picture of the glory there. But if we get our focus simply on, you know, the, the, the material end of the glory, we've missed the, the, the spiritual beauty. Yeah, right, let me make we got a, we got, real quick. We got a question from the audience. Uh, Herman Ortiz uh, asks, I understand Christians are going to heaven. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think heaven has to be, as Revelation 20 says, with new earth because of the terminology coming down or descending. Uh, what are your thoughts? So it sounds like that's a reference to that. Uh, the beginning of the chapter there says, I saw to Jerusalem uh, coming down. Uh, as a bride adorned for her husband uh, there in Revelation 21. Uh, do you all have thoughts on that? 
I'm not sure I understand the question, the point of the question, and I'm not sure I understand Revelation 21, to tell you, to, to just be perfectly candid about it. Uh, there's a lot of language in the Bible that is possibly applicable to both heaven hereafter or eternity and also to God's uh, spiritual church now. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to uh, know for certain if a passage is one or the other or both. Um, So I I don't have a whole lot of comment there. And I'll just say we need to just be really careful about geography and stuff in Revelation. I mean, there's so many images mixed together there where uh, there's a, it's a new heavens and a new earth. And then there's a holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How do you dress a city like a bride? You know, I mean, there's, there's different images that emphasize different aspects of what he's talking about, but I don't think we're meant to press each of those images too far as we've already mentioned with some of these other things. In revelation 12, one, a great sign was seen in heaven. A woman is about to give birth to a child, and the child ends up being Jesus. That doesn't mean Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem, for example. Yeah. We, All right. Uh, Scott, you want to say something. See something? Go ahead. I was going to take us back to the Hades and hell issue in Matthew 16, but I'll get there in a minute. I don't know if this is going to relate to what you're going to bring in, but, Scott, you were talking recently about dying. Again, you have to clarify this. Dying, but you're naked. And then when the judgment comes, you're clothed. Something like that. I forget exactly yeah. how you were saying it. Yeah, that was uh, what Paul wrote in Second Corinthians chapter 5, which Second Corinthians 4, 5, and Romans 8 have just a tremendous number of parallels. We won't go through those. But after chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, talking about our outward man is decaying, our inward man is renewed day by day. Uh, and he talks about the persecution he's gone through and the sufferings. But he says in verse 18, he's not looking at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. Then 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know that if the earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens. For verily in this we groan, same language as Romans 8, longing to be clothed upon with our habitation, which is from heaven. If that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For indeed, we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be clothed upon, that which is mortal may be swallowed up of life. I've tried to find it, but years and years and years ago, I saw a statue that represented, if I remember correctly, the platonic idea of death. And it was a guy taking off his clothing. It was the idea of, oh, you can't wait to get rid of this body. And there was a huge Greek resistance to the idea of resurrection. Now, the resurrected body, we know in 1 Corinthians 15, it won't actually be a body of what? Flesh. Yeah. And Flesh and blood. And it it will be, it says, uh, an incorruptible spiritual body. So this, this is different from the Greek idea of just, yeah, almost seeking to be disembodied, whereas Paul is teaching in the future, past that day that the thief would be in paradise, past that day in which, uh, you know, the days of Lazarus and the rich man, 
in the future when we have this great resurrection. Yeah. And so I think, Scott, one of the things we might be able to say from that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 is that even if you don't know all the details, uh, when we die, there is a time in which we're in this unclothed state. Right. Our physical body has passed away and is decaying here uh, or has been destroyed in some way. Um, but we're waiting for our body from heaven, a, a spiritual, or what, how does he say it here, that we be further clothed, uh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Uh, we're waiting for this incorruptible body, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and so when we're in that intermediate state, if you will, but we're, we're, we're no longer on earth, but we're still waiting for something. Yeah. Uh, there is, there is comfort and there is torment. There's two groups of people already separated and you can't pass from one to the other. Um, but there's still this anticipation. There's still this, uh, waiting for something that's going to happen that God has promised with the resurrection, the final judgment. Um, but it's not this immediately to our final state. Yeah, and, and that's, that's why it's, not, it's good, I think, to talk about states of existence rather than geography. So many people have the idea, well, when you die, uh, it's all over. Now you're with the Lord and everything is done. Well, Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, so I do believe those who are faithful and they die, they're with the Lord. But no, it's not all done. They are still waiting, as you say, with this sense of anticipation for that final culmination, that resolution of the problem of death. When we overcome death, we're raised from the dead and and we get that glorified body. And that happens at the last day. And a vindication as well in Revelation chapter six, the souls of those that had been martyred and executed by the enemies of God are under the altar crying out, you know, when, when will we How be long, oh Lord, till thou dost avenge our yeah. mm-hmm. All right. Can I, can I take a minute here to talk about, you know, so many people, when, I, when, when we come to passage that says Hades, you ask the question, so what's Hades? And immediately you get the answer, that's hell. And, and in the King James Version, sure enough, where the Bible says Hades, the King James uses the word hell. We do better with most translations, as with most translations, we do better in our understanding. If we understand hell is that place of eternal uh, destruction, that place of eternal punishment. Um, And Hades is the realm of the dead. Right. Kind of indiscriminately the realm of the dead. Um, And and people, some people seem to think, well, there is no more Hades. But Matthew, the 16th chapter, I think has some bearing here. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, uh, this is where Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And then he says, and the gates of Hades, Hades, not the, he's not talking about the place of eternal punishment. He's saying the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If we understand Hades to be the realm of the dead, it's associated with death, and we remember that in Revelation, the first chapter, Jesus says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. What do you do with keys? Open, open doors. Close doors. You can open and close things. You have the power to open up that door. Jesus has the keys of death and of Hades. He can open up death. He can open up Hades. He is the resurrection. And so in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, uh, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, what he's saying is, 
I have the power to release the church, the saints, God's people. I have the power to release them out of death, and I'm going to do it so that those gates are not going to prevail. They're not going to stay shut and keep my people in because they're going to be victorious over death. A lot of people have missed this because they've thought Matthew 16 is somehow talking about whether or not there's ever a time when no Christians are alive on the earth or not. It's not talking about that. It's talking about Jesus' power to give his church victory over death. But now what that says is his church, his people, the saints, do need to have that victory over death. They need to be rescued out of it. And, and that's what they'll do when they are raised as Jesus himself was raised. Yeah, uh, let, me ask, let me ask a question on that very thing. You're talking about Hades. People are, some people are interpreting Hades as to be hell. But it, didn't Jesus go into Hades? Yeah, I believe yeah. it did. Yeah, so that it can't be hell. It's the realm of the dead, not necessarily hell. But so there are people, uh, what's her name, uh, Jane, popular TV preacher, Tom, Peter, Tom. Joyce Meyer, or something. Oh, she Joyce Meyer. Jesus, Jesus went to hell. Uh, and one thing a passage confused people: Acts two, where Peter quotes Psalm sixteen. The King James again incorrectly translates Hades as hell. Gehenna is the word translated hell. Hades should just be Hades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's where Peter quotes Psalm sixteen: "You will not leave my soul unto Hades." the realm of the dead, the grave, you won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. And he said, David wasn't talking about himself because he's dead and buried. His tomb is here. So he saw corruption. Yeah, he's he's with the dead. He's in the grave. Uh, So the Hebrew of this text, of course, was not Hades, but there was a Hebrew word for this, and it was what? Sheol. Sheol. And it was like when Jacob thought that Joseph showed the coat of many colors, he said, what, I'm going to go, we would say, I'm going to go to my grave in mourning. What he said was, I'm going to go to Sheol in mourning. He doesn't mean I'm going to go to hell in mourning. He no. means from now till the day I die, I, I'm going to mourn the loss of my son. I'm going to go to my grave in mourning. Yeah. What Psalm 16 says is that this holy one wouldn't be left in the grave, wouldn't be left in the realm of the dead. Yeah. So what we might say, as you've already really mentioned, is where it says that word Hades we might just say the grave um, is kind of a good substitute for, for that idea. Yeah. Uh, we just got a couple more minutes here, uh, but Alan Williamson commented a second ago and said about our, uh, about our bodies, uh, we will be preserved entire body, soul, spirit. Our physical body will be resurrected, transformed, be glorious. Um, in the grave, we spirits, await our bodily resurrection something that will happen on the day of judgment. Those alive, when Jesus returns, will not jettison their bodies. They will be transformed. So it would right. be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that talks about, uh, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 15, we, we will, in, in the twinkling Same. of an eye at the last trumpet, we will be changed, That's right. uh, caught up together uh, with, with those uh, in, the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's right. So we'll always be with the Lord. That's right. Pet peeve. Um, there's a song. It's one of my least favorite songs. Sing it for us. <laughs> I, I won't torture you with that. No, 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 no. Don't do that. I'm satisfied with just a little cottage below, a little silver, and a little gold. I've got to have some, though. I've got to have some. <laughs> yeah, you got to have some. But in that city where who's going to shine? 
where the ransomed will shine. I want a gold one that's silver lined. And it seems to me the next line should be, and I want a Lexus in a heated pool. <laughs> um, it's, the, the, the light there, you know, it needs no sun in Revelation because God's there. The son of God is there. And, and that's the light. It's this uh, man in the beginning, God is removed from uh, man is removed from God in the garden and separated. At the end of the Bible, man is reunited with God. It's like from garden to garden, you have this restoration of all things. And so for it to be a beautiful place, great. But Bill Gates might be able to pave a street with gold. <laughs> that wouldn't make it heaven. Right, 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 right. That's right. So we're, we're about out of time here. Y'all correct me if I'm wrong, but to, to kind of sum up, we might say based on the passages that we've read, that when we die, uh, we go into a state where we do not have a body for a time, and we are either in a place of comfort, a place of rest with Christ, or we are in a place of torment and anguish without Christ. And in either case, we're awaiting a day uh, in which we are, uh, will receive a, a, an incorruptible body and our, we will be raised. Um, and, and from that point, we will continue to either be with the Lord or away from the Lord in a place of comfort or a place of torment. Um, but that those are the two primary things that we're, we're, we're looking at. There will be. I believe a, that's uh, right. I believe that's a good summation. Marvel not at this, the hour cometh in which all that are in the tomb shall hear his voice, those that have come, and they shall come forth, those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's another hymn that I like, because there's a lot of specifics. I, in some ways, I wish we knew a lot of like, what's this going to be like? What's that going to be like? Um, but this hymn, I, I like the way it puts it. It says, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim but tis enough that Christ knows all and I will be with him. Oh yeah. Much better. Him. And that's uh, I think a good thought to, to end on today. Thank you to everybody, uh, all our panelists and everybody who's sent in questions or comments today. Um, we look forward to seeing y'all next Tuesday at two o'clock. Thanks everybody. All right, take care guys. Bye-bye.